Amen. We are continuing in our series in the book of Exodus, entitled Free at Last. This morning we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 21 and looking at the first 11 verses of Exodus 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed." He shall, not, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, he shall go, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that as we look together as your, at your word, that you would give us wisdom together, that you would teach us uh, from the scriptures, Lord, who you are and how you have come to shape us together as your people, how you have called us out into this world to be salt and light. We pray now that uh, as all of us sit under the authority of your word, you would teach us and you would do that work in us, that you would make us more like your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name, amen. Now, we're going to be looking uh, over the next few weeks at some of the old covenant regulations, and so I want to say a couple things just as we look at these old covenant regulations, we are going to see in them uh, some, I think, helpful principles for us of who our God is and how our God um, sought to shape his old covenant people and how he seeks to shape us as his people together. Uh, some of these uh, regulations are going to be strange to you, and they should be. They're um, uh, millennia old, so, uh, so some of the practices and customs uh, will be um, strange, and so I will try to explain things as we go along. Amen. Uh, in a passage where God addresses a similar situation to the one that is before us, that of a Hebrew man or woman who sells themselves or, or sold into slavery to pay off a debt, God gives a reason that is almost certainly in view in the text before us in Exodus 21. In Deuteronomy 15, God says this, if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember 
that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. That Israel had been redeemed by God from slavery in Egypt was to be the foundation of their own practice in dealing with fellow Israelites who had fallen into poverty and were forced by their financial hardship to sell themselves to labor to pay off the debt. No matter the size of the debt, a fellow Israelite was to be set free after six years, and according to Deuteronomy, furnished liberally with what they needed to rebuild their lives. The command to bless them as God had blessed you would most certainly have been a reminder of the incredible generosity of God in providing a land for the Israelites that flowed with milk and honey. The Israelites then were to image God by doing for their brothers and sisters on a smaller scale what God had done for them as a nation. In addition, there is another truth that might be helpful for us uh, from this Deuteronomy passage to think about as we consider the Exodus 21 passage. And that is the truth that in this regulation about releasing a Hebrew who has sold themselves uh, or himself or herself into slavery, uh, God is regulating a relationship that was not his desired relationship among his people. That is, his people would not find themselves in a situation in which they would have to return to slavery uh, is clear from what he says earlier in the chapter when he says this in Deuteronomy. However, there need be no poor among you, for in the land your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land your Lord the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. This attitude and commitment to generosity, had it been practiced, may have allowed no room for the need of an Israelite man or woman to sell herself or himself into slavery, to pay debts. But God knows our weakness, and He knows our sins. And because He will proclaim Himself in the Scriptures to be the God of the vulnerable, the God of the foreigner, the God of the widow, the God of the fatherless, the God of the slave, God instructs His people how they're to handle situations like the one before us in Exodus 21. And in so doing, God actually shows Himself to be the God who is concerned not just about His people's spiritual condition, but about their social conditions. The social conditions of His people individually and corporately in their relationships with each other. It is this concern that informs John's words in 1 John 3, 16 and 17. If any of you has this world's goods and sees your brother or sister in need, and close your hand. How does the love of God abide in you? It is this concern that I believe informs Jesus' words to His disciples as to how they are to regard one another in Luke 22, verses 24 through 27, where He talks to them about the Gentiles lording it over each other, but you are not to be that way in your relationships with each other. You are 
to be servants to one another. God's regulation then of debt slavery in this text then is not a tacit endorsement of slavery, but rather a reminder to God's people that he is the God of the slave. The God who cares about those who find themselves trapped in a condition of servitude. For the slave and other vulnerable groups of people, God has a message. And it's a message of a God who draws near to them. It is a message of a God who cares about their plight. It is a message about a God who is present with them to redeem. And isn't this the message of the gospel? Because it is too a message to slaves. It's a message to those trapped under the oppression of that which is the cause of all human slavery, sin. For those trapped under that sin and its consequence, death, God sent His Son, of whom the Apostle Paul speaks when he says that He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became a doulos, a slave to free slaves, because God is the God of slaves, <laughs> the God who redeems them from slavery and makes them a kingdom of priests to serve Him. Amen, Amen people of God. Amen. So, what can we learn then from this text about God's commitment to vulnerable people? Let me start by saying that slavery was a feature of the ancient Near Eastern culture in which Israel lived from debt slavery to war captives to slavery as punishment for a crime, servitude, both voluntary and forced, could be found throughout Israel, uh, throughout society. How was Israel to be different regarding her interaction with this practice? How were they to be a light to the nations regarding how they viewed and treated those with this vulnerable status? What were they meant to convey to the nations about God? and how they treated those with this vulnerable status. And as we answer these questions, let me note an important feature of the text in front of us. The regulation regarding debt slavery in this text is divided into two sections, one addressing male debt slaves and the other addressing female debt slaves. However, there are other passages that speak to this same practice in the Old Testament where the regulations apply both to male and female debt slaves alike, such as the one I just read to you from Deuteronomy 15. The reason for dividing them out here may be due to the question regarding what to do in the case of marriage as it relates to either. In each section, there is a primary regulation that is then followed by secondary regula regulations which function like case law, that is, law based on a judicial decision uh, that is based on the circumstances and facts of a particular case. Why do I point this out? I point it out because in each section, the primary regulation is the foundational principle that is meant to ground the way each case is judged. And it's that foundational principle that God wants His people to live by. So what do we learn? We learn, first of all, that care for the vulnerable is demonstrated to a commitment, through a commitment of upholding their freedom. Care for the vulnerable is demonstrated through a commitment to upholding their freedom. 
The primary ruling in the first section of Exodus 21, 1 through 11 says this, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and then the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. This ruling is rooted in Israel's own story of God's redemption. God did not pay Egypt a dime for his people's deliverance. Because his people did not belong to Egypt, they belonged to God. Indeed, not only did God not pay Egypt, but instead he sent his people away with silver and gold and clothing, which was given to them by the Egyptian people. How then should a people redeemed in such a fashion treat those who found themselves in slavery to pay off a debt? The answer is clear. Israel is to be given to the same commitment that they saw in their God who redeemed them from slavery. While God permitted a term of service to pay off the debt, showing a concern for the one owed the debt, the service was to be ended after six years, no matter how large the debt. And according to verses 5 to 6 of the text, the only way that the service could be perpetual would be in the case of the slave voluntarily of, of his own free will committing himself to such service. He or she was not to be forced to serve forever. And when they were set free, the slave was to pay nothing for his freedom, but rather be freely released. And according to Deuteronomy 15, the passage I read earlier, they were not to go out empty-handed in the same way that the Israelites did not go out empty-handed when they left Egypt. The only exception to this ruling was in the case of a wife who had been given in a, a wife who had been given to a debt slave during his period of slavery. So remember that in the ancient Near East, marriages were arranged, unlike in most of our marriages in the West. And these arranged marriages came with the, ex, the expectation of the groom or the groom's family giving the bride's family a monetary gift. However, in the case of a debt slave, this price would not be possible to pay given that he was already working off a debt. Thus, it would be paid for him on, on, be paid for on his behalf by the one for whom he was already working. And that would mean incurring more debt that would also need to be worked off. This, coupled with the possibility that the woman whom he was to marry was also a debt slave, meant that even if his sixth years expired, he would not be able to take his wife and children with him until all the debts were paid. As an example, just consider Jacob and Rachel and how long Jacob had to work for Laban to obtain Rachel, especially given Laban's abusive deception of his son-in-law. You can just see in all of that how messy and difficult and painful that slavery could be. Yet you can also understand just why God emphasizes for his people that they be committed to their fellow Israelites' freedom even as he has shown a great commitment to theirs. Such a commitment, if Israel was to embrace it, would almost certainly have shaped their life together leading to new ways of relating to one another that were different than what the nations around them were doing. Instead, 
Israel heaped years of, dis of disobedience in this area, refusing to set slaves free as God had directed them until in Jeremiah, God came speaking and declaring, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I made a covenant with your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said, every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrews who have sold themselves to you. And after they have served you six years, you must let them go free. Your ancestors, however, did not pay attention to me. Recently, you repented did what was right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to your own people. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name, but now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the, fem the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom to your own people. So now I proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague, and famine. I will make you abhorrent to the, all the kingdoms of the earth. Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf that cut in two, they cut in, in two and then walk between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will deliver into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them. The de their dead bodies will become food for the birds and wild animals. Needless to say, <laughs> that God is committed to freedom for the vulnerable among his people. We know from the rest of scriptures, the vulnerable from among the peoples of the earth, how committed is he? How committed is he? He is committed enough to send his own son, to set free from sin and death a people for himself, through whom he will proclaim that freedom in the world and through whom he will demonstrate his kindness and his compassion by calling that community to care for the freedom of the most vulnerable of the earth. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. What's the point? People who have been freed ought to show in their practices a great deal of concern and commitment to the freedom of others. Indeed, our spiritual freedom from the ultimate slave master sin ought to make us a people committed to rescuing people from every concrete expression of that sin in this world. Jesus' own life and witness is a demonstration of this commitment and to this call on the church. Christians are called to radical generosity, generosity that frees people from the kind of deliberating, debilitating poverty that would make someone that, that would make something like debt slavery a necessity. The opposite of this generosity is greed, which we are consistently called away from in the Scriptures. One could argue, in fact, that slavery historically in the West had its foundations in human greed, a desire for more and more profit at the expense of human dignity and human flourishing. A call to freedom for others will call us to examine our own lives 
for that greed that consumes human flourishing rather than promoting it. It means asking myself where might my pursuit of plenty result in other people's poverty? Where might my pursuit of plenty result in other people's slavery? Christians are those who, call, are, call, who are called out to relate to each other as brothers and sisters and others as neighbors that would eradicate all forms of oppression in our relationships with each other. Christians are those who, call, who are called to protect the most vulnerable in our midst and in our world, which would cause us to cry out against things like sex trafficking and child labor and child soldiers and forced labor. Individually and corporately, the call on us then is to live in our relationships with each other and to promote the kinds of relationships in the world that proclaim freedom. Indeed, even in the Old Covenant, every 50th year was to be a year of release, a year when debts were canceled and property restored and debt slaves freed. If Jesus then is the fulfillment of that promise of release and delivering us from the ultimate slavery, how then can we not give ourselves to the eliminating of all forms of slavery in our world? Amen, people of God. This is our call. This is our commitment as God's people. A freed people ought to care about the freedom of others. Did you hear me? A freed people ought to care about the freedom of others. To care, what this text teaches us uh, is, is care for the vulnerable is demonstrated through uphold, upholding their freedom, but it also shows us that care for the vulnerable is demonstrated through a commitment to upholding their rights. Some of y'all are not going to like that language because you think I'm being political, but I'm not. Just hold on and listen. In the ancient Near East, women in general were vulnerable to all kinds of abuse. Thus, a female debt slave would not only be vulnerable within the system of debt slavery because of her status as a slave, but also as a woman. The primary regulation or ruling in this text, in this part of the text, is found in verse 7, which says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. And the scenario here is a situation in which a daughter is sold into debt slavery with the additional promise that she would become either a second wife to the one to whom she is being sold or the wife of the man's son. And the ruling that she is not to go out as the male slaves do is not a ruling that there will be no way for her to get out of the service. Verse 11 makes it clear that there is, in fact, a way out should she be mistreated or her rights deprived. The point is that marriage being a commitment of life, only a violation of that contract would be grounds for release. Now, I don't need to tell you that this whole arrangement is not what God intended for men and women. For marriage to be tied to debt slavery or a woman to find herself in a situation where she was a second wife was not God's plan for marriage. Jesus himself makes this clear in a conversation with the Pharisees about marriage in Matthew 19. Have you not read that the one who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God is joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, 
Why then did, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. God's design was for the two to become one and for that relationship to be rooted in a lifelong commitment to each other, to love and protect and honor and bless each other. Side note, by the way, if we recognize today that polygamy was not what God desired and that His desire was for a man and woman to be joined together and for them to be one flesh, why is it so hard for us to understand that slavery was not God's ideal for the way people were to relate to each other? That it was not a part of God's creation order? I say that for those who are doing revisionist history about slavery in this culture. I digress. The Exodus text presents us with a world in which the hardness of men's hearts and the reality of debilitating, debilitating poverty forced people into relationships that were less than what God had designed. So how does God respond? He enters into that world to ensure that those who find themselves in these hard situations and circumstances are not taken advantage of. A woman leaving the protection of her family and coming under this new household was to be afforded the protections and rights of a wife in the case uh, where she was marrying, uh, in the case where she was marrying, uh, m- marrying the man, she was, to, she was to be afforded the rights and protections of a wife, and in the case of the marrying of the son, she was to be treated as a daughter. She was not to be deprived of those protections and rights under any circumstances. If she were, she would be free to leave. So what is the point then of all of this? On the one hand, it is to remind the people of who God is, a point taken up by the psalmist in Psalm 140 when he says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. And on the other hand, it's a call to His people to maintain that same cause and execute that same justice in their life together. The Israelites were to ensure that everyone's rights were protected and, every, and especially the rights of the most vulnerable among them. They were not to deprive the poor and needy of their rights, but to fight for them to ensure that they were upheld. And in so doing, they would be a light in a dark world, a world where the vulnerable were often taken advantage of and not protected. Amen, people of God. A people whose rights have been defended by the Lord ought to show in their practices a commitment to upholding the rights of others. While we are certainly called in the new covenant to refrain from pressing our rights in every circumstance in order to pursue unity, This call is a voluntary one, and it assumes the possession of those rights and privileges that have been given to us by God. Yet as Christians, there is a special emphasis which we must commit ourselves to, and that is to ensuring that the rights of the vulnerable are not trampled upon. Christians are those who are called to speak up on behalf of the poor, an activity that assumes situations where the voice of the poor is in some way muted by the circumstances that they find themselves in. Christians are those who are called to examine their own practices, 
to make sure that they do not hinder the ability of the weak to attain justice in situations where they have been wronged. Christians are those who are called to relate to each other and to promote in the world around us what upholds those rights that the Lord Himself has said belong to those who are created in His image and after His likeness. And the Scriptures don't leave us guessing as to the good that we owe to each other. We just finished the Ten Commandments, which summarized that good, which summarized what we owe to each other as right. Individually and corporately, then, we are to live with one another in a way that promotes what is right and that gives to each other what is right. How does God show Himself in this Scripture to be the God of the slave? He shows Himself to be the God of the slave by being the God who draws near to those who are trapped in that situation to uphold their freedom. And He shows Himself to be the God of the slave by being the God who draws near to the poor and needy and defends their cause. If that's God, if that's how he acts in the world, how should his people act? How should his people behave? What should be our attitude and our commitment as the church in the world? What should freed people act like? They should be a people committed to others' freedom, amen, people of God. And they should be a people committed to upholding others' rights, the rights given to them by God. Amen, people of God. If we commit ourselves to being that kind of people, then we will be the city set on a hill that everyone else can look at and see and proclaim that's what true humanity looks like. It looks like those people in the church who actually work for the freedom of others who actually work to uphold the rights of the poor and the needy of the earth. Amen, people of God. That ain't the social gospel. That's the Bible. That is what the gospel calls us to. That is what the gospel calls us to. Amen, people of God. Amen. Our own salvation. And Jesus is rooted in this truth, the truth that God delivers slaves. For we have been delivered from our slavery to sin through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. So how then should a people who have been freed behave toward those who are their brothers and sisters and their neighbors? They should be a people committed to the upholding of the freedom of the vulnerable, and they should be a people committed to upholding the rights of the vulnerable. Let's be that kind of people, New City. Amen? Amen. Through the grace of God, through the power of God, let's be that, through the Spirit of God, let's be that kind of people. Amen.